Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. and welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. I am so excited to bring you this episode. This episode, we had the pleasure and the honor of talking to Marsha Warfield. If you don't know who Marsha Warfield is, look her up. She's amazing. She was on Night Court. She was on Empty Nest. She was on the Richard Pryor show. She had the Marsha Warfield show at one point. She had her own show. She's been doing stand-up for years and years. She's hilarious and a sweet person. And we reached out to her about, I was going to Vegas for Clexicon. And I thought, hey, you know, let me reach out to Marsha Warfield. She's there. She's amazing. Queer icon, legend in the comedy world. And uh, she said, absolutely, I'd love to do an interview. And not only that, but she hooked us up with tickets for her show. I brought, I re- actually reconnected at Clexicon with Tina Cacadellis, the young adult lesbian author uh, that we interviewed for episode 26. And Tina and her friend Melanie came and we all checked out the show. And then afterwards, I interviewed Marsha and it was fantastic. And it was so great to bring all those worlds together and for Marsha to just be so gracious and amazing. We'll be getting to the interview in a minute. Uh, before that, just a little business, Clexicon in Vegas. Thank you, Clexicon. Uh, we had such a good time. We did a panel about protecting podcasts, web series, and blogs. We uh, were a vendor and exhibitor there, got to meet a ton of people, got to connect with a lot of folks that we've been connecting with on social media that we got to meet in real life, which was cool. Special shout out to the Les Represent podcast. It was so cool meeting you uh, and just, you know, being in the same physical space as you. Uh, We had some merch that we were selling, some buttons and some stickers. We still have some left, so check out our social media. Uh, If you want to get those, shipping's free in the United States. And if you're international, just let us know where you are and we'll let you know, you know, what the shipping's going to be on that. But we got some really cute designs that were designed by Laura Sanders, who's a local New Orleans artist uh, who designed our podcast logo. And we have those for you. Instagram, Facebook, Near and Queer to My Heart, Twitter, Queer to My Heart. You can email us, nearandqueertomyheart at gmail.com. Check that all out. But right now we're going to get to this episode because, like I said, this was a true honor. This is a comedy genius, legend. This is somebody who is so amazing and had so much wisdom to impart. And it was just funny. And he had such a good time doing this interview. And we are so honored to bring you Marsha Warfield. And yeah, so we're we're recording. You're going to hear jingles. I'm not going to ask you to take anything off. <laughs> I would never do that. Would you ask Cher to take off her feathers? (laughs) I would never. Okay, see. I would never. I appreciate that. Your show was so amazing tonight. Thank you. Can we talk about Kanye? Because you talked about Kanye. Sure. (laughs) How do you feel about... Because Kanye's from Chicago. You're from Chicago. Kanye's from Chicago. Kanye's a success story. He's... uh... You're not worried about him? Well, I don't worry about grown people. You know, he's <laughs> yeah. going to figure it out. I mean, the man's a father. 
Uh, he's a married man. He's a businessman. He's relatively successful, from what I can tell. And he has a... Uh, he's not doing bad. Uh, you know, he's doing okay. He, the fact that he's crazy uh, puts him in pretty good stead in uh, today's America. Uh, crazy is pretty much the norm. Yeah, but he, he, I mean, he was supporting Trump. He took it back at one point. And I know in your in your set, and I know in your uh, your Facebook and your tw- I, I follow your Twitter religiously. <laughs> You're not. No, I'm not a Trump fan. I wasn't a Trump fan when he was on The Apprentice. So you know, going to be a fan when The Apprentice guy is now the president. I think there's something wrong with the system when that happens. So uh, no, I'm not a fan of it. And you know, Kanye is a cultural marker that is identifiable and immediately puts us in the place that we are, that we need to be. And uh, people like uh, like Kanye, Barack Obama, uh, Oprah Winfrey, those names, the Beyonce's, they are, they are cultural markers that, that take, if I say Della Reese, you don't mm-hmm. think Kanye. You think yeah. of a specific time, you think of a, of a, a specific kind of mood, and it just takes you and to a time and place that you need to be. And so uh, Kanye is relevant to me in that regard. And, you know, I don't have any reason not to like the young man. I'm not, like I said, that's not my kind of music. I, I don't know whether he's great or okay or whatever. I just... Uh, listening yeah. to him be interviewed and the things he says and stuff. I feel uh, protective yeah. of him. You like the R&B. Oh, I love R&B. That joke, she, you had a joke about how, like, you can't fuck the gospel. No, you can't. I'm working on a bit, on a whole, uh, not just a bit, but a concept of uh, America's cool. Black people gave America its cool, and every 20 years or so, America tries to co-opt it and totally loses its cool. We're in one of those, America has lost its cool uh, time periods, and so... It's time to get back to the things that make us cool. And, you know, R&B is America's cool. It's it's uh, in that uh, progression from blues to jazz to uh, gospel to R&B. And then we went on to the hip-hop and neo-soul and stuff like that. But those are the con- contributions that give America swag. And so we have to bring it back. America needs a little swag right now. Instead of MAGA, we'll make it MACA. Make America <laughs> cool again. I'd be into that. The real question I wanted to ask you, and this was the first question I meant to ask you, but I didn't. You retired for 20 years. Yes. That is my dream. <laughs> that is my dream. I am 35, and I just got an AARP thing in the mail, Ooh. and I was so excited. I was like, they think I can retire. I'm so excited. How did you do that, and then how did you come back? Well, life happened. To us, uh, people think once you get in the show business, you no longer are a human. Well, we're all people and there are obligations and uh, and people who need you. And, you know, all kind of things happen to people. And for me, the personal family issues were uh, more important. And I had to devote the time to them and the presence that that required. But I always wanted to do uh, get back into stand-up. I, for me, it, it was a calling when I first started doing it. The first time I went on stage, I was absolutely, I understood people who claim they have a calling for whatever. It just was like, you know, 
the heavens opened up and said, Marta. <laughs> and so uh, it's something I always wanted to do. And as soon as I had the opportunity and the uh, uh, time where I was no longer, my presence was no longer uh, as necessary to my family, then I went back to doing stand-up. And how was that coming back after, what, about 20 years, give or take? Yeah, it was something like that. But, you know, the, I think for me it was okay. You know, it's difficult starting all over again, and that's what I had to do. And uh, for me, I understood that right away, that, you know, you don't jump back into line where you think you're supposed to be. You have to start all over again. There's, there's the whole generation of people who have no idea who you are and don't care. And uh, you have to reintroduce yourself uh, to the world. And I had to refine my technique, my point of view, my everything, and just start all over like I'd never done it before. And how did you start writing jokes again? I mean, I'm always writing. I'm always writing. Because it doesn't stop, right? Always. You know, I'm always making movies in my head. There are people who live in my head, and some have some, you know, you know, closer neighbors than others but there are lots of people in there and uh, so writing material is not a problem uh, for me I learned from my mentors and the people I admire that you write a joke something happens or whatever if you wrote that one you can write another one if you're receptive to your own thought process the jokes are always going to be there and then how how do you tell because like I go to open, like, I'm a stand-up, and I go to open mics. How do you get to test material? I mean, are you doing open mics the way that I'm doing them at bars at 11 at night on a Wednesday? Or, like, how do you test your material to know, like, it's ready for a show at the Stratosphere Hotel? I don't. I mean, you... Is best every, guess forecast? Is that... Every show... The thing about stand-up is you can't practice it without an audience. You have to have an audience, whether it's two people in a bar or an audience at the Strat or wherever. And uh, you're going to have to introduce new material. I mean, this is just what we do. And so the stage time at the Stratosphere gives me the time to do that. I get to play. I didn't do the same show tonight that I did last night. And I won't do the same show next time. And some of it is always new. And some of it is, you know, material that is uh, uh, tested well. But where it comes up or how it uh, shows up, whether it has the same form it did before. I don't know. <laughs> it comes out like it comes out. I didn't know because I, I know when like people do shows over, you know, you do sh two shows a week mm -hmm. at the Stratosphere. So I didn't know if it was like the same shit or if you're like mixing in new stuff. I'm always trying to uh, add in stuff. And uh, the key for me and the key for everybody, but now... A day is the key for me. It's remembering it. I'll say some stuff <laughs> funny as hell and have no idea I said that tomorrow. So. I, look, I have the same problem. <laughs> I finally started recording my sets. And now I have to listen to them. But every once in a while when I listen to them, I'm like, oh, I did say that thing. And that's actually funny. And maybe I should apply it I can't to future listen sets. To myself. I have, you have to tie me down and make me listen to the shows. I have ta shows taped. Sometimes what I'll do is put them on and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll put just them on kind of low, you know, and hope that maybe I'll I'll, I'll absorb some of it. I just don't want to. It's the hardest thing to listen to your own 
self-talking and watch your own self-performing. Well, we'd live in our own thoughts and then they have them come back. But it's valuable. So, you know, and usually I'm pleasantly surprised when I see performances. I'm First, I'm cringing and then I go, well, you know, she wasn't bad. <laughs> That's the best, though. Because I listen on my way to work. Like, I'll record a set at night and the next day I wake up and I drive to my real job and I'll be listening, and I'm like, oh, that was actually pretty funny. And it's a weird experience to have. Also, sometimes I, like, have the window down, and there's, like, somebody, like, outside the car, and I'm like, they can – they don't know it's my voice, but I feel like they know. So it's like they just hear me listening to myself. And I'm like, they just think I'm nuts. Well, like that's what we do. How did you end up at the Stratosphere? Like, how did this show happen? Boy, that was a long route, um, about – Four, three years ago now, four years ago now, I went to see Rain Pryor, and uh, I was not doing stand-up, man. I went to see her, and she was, uh, she had Stephen Roberts, who works our show, opening for her, and I believe it was at the L.A. Comedy Club. It was in a different location then, and that's when I said, I want to do this again, (laughs) and so I started working around at the uh Improv had a room at uh, Harris, and I would work there. Uh, and then I started working at a place called The Loft, and I would do shows there, and I'd do bar shows, and whatever came along. And uh, somehow they were having some kind of show at the Stratosphere, and I, I went and started doing shows there. They had a midnight show, I mean an 11 o'clock show, 10 o'clock show, whatever. They were doing, and the headliner uh, left, and they brought in a new headliner. wasn't me, but the new headliner didn't want to uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays. I said, I'll take them. So that's how I got it. <laughs> that's and I don't know why I told the first part of that story. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, this no, is what we're here for. Like you said, you just listen to yourself talk. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up south side of Chicago? Do you watch the show Shameless by any chance? No. Okay. I, I stopped watching TV pretty oh, much. Oh, at all? I stopped watching TV a lot over time, just over time. I did, there were shows I, I wanted to watch, and I did. But when I wanted to get back into stand-up, I didn't want to be influenced by other people's materials. I didn't want to watch sitcoms. I don't want to watch uh, too many movies. I don't want to watch other stand-ups as much as I love them and I appreciate them I just we are sponges by nature and observers and so when you hear things that trigger you tend to go with them and even if you're not taking other people's material you're responding to trends and putting yourself into whatever is trending right now and I didn't want to do that I wanted to whatever is in my brain and whatever comes out my mouth that's who I am uh, authentically. So I don't watch a lot of TV. Okay, yeah, I was asked, because Shameless is like, they're like, we're Southside. And I was like, is this is this how it is? Is it not? And this is a question I ask everybody, and it's a multi-part question. I'm usually a multi-part question person. I very much apologize for that, because I know it's a lot. Um, it's the coming out question. But okay. it's not just one part, because... I get it. I have to decide to come out every single day of my life. When I came here and my Lyft driver is like, oh, are you seeing somebody? It's like, I have to decide, hey, yes, I am. Do I disclose who it is? So the question is, when did you come out? 
to yourself? And then when did you come out to your friends and family? And then when did you come out on stage? Because you did have a bunch of jokes. And I do want to get to some of those jokes because they hit so hard with me, especially the shoe, the shoe store <laughs> thing. We're going to put a pin in that. We were all busting up. Uh, I had the two friends here yeah. who were just like, holy shit. But so the, so the multi-part question okay. to refocus. Yeah. When did you come out to yourself? And then when did you come out to your friends and family? And then when did you come out in public? Well, pretty much all of that's in the act. I didn't, you don't always, I don't always get a chance to do all of the material uh, on a particular subject, but all of that's in the act. Growing up in the 50s and 60s, nobody talked about being gay. There was no word gay that was not part of the national vocabulary. It was uh, basically all I knew about gay people was uh, uh, organ players in church. (laughs) Every church I ever went to, the organist was always gay. I don't know why. And the choir director, it just seemed to work that way. And nobody talked about them being that way. And... uh, I had no clue, and I talk about how I had no clue there were people in my family who were gay, and they weren't down low gay. They weren't, you know, undercover gay. They were stereotypically flaming gay, like Aunt Butchie and Uncle Twirl. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what that meant. All they told me is I was different, which means they knew, and they didn't tell me, which yeah. is cruel. So I didn't find out I was gay until I met her. Who's her? Her. Is she still around? Yeah, I call her her. <laughs> she calls me stalker. But, <laughs> but no, that's the joke. And I had no clue until my boyfriend told me that I was gay. Is that the joke? Or is- yeah, that's the joke. <laughs> and that's the truth. The person I was seeing, I met a woman and I was didn't know how to respond, you know, and she would oh. like, she gave me her phone number and said, go, give me a call. And I I was so nervous. I don't know how to call people. They give me a number. I need to call You're like, I know how to call people, and but right, not her. And I told my uh, boyfriend, I'm like, I don't get why, what it is about her. I just don't uh, know why I like her so much. And he said, like, <laughs> <laughs> bitch, you in love. And I went, oh, 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 <laughs> duh. And <laughs> light bulb. So you realized that you weren't like fighting it? No, that's when the light you bulb like, went off. Yeah. Well, you have to remember, though, this was the early 70s. It's like 1975, 76, something like that. And back then, we were in a free love kind of mindset. Disco, uh, the hippie generation was, you know, people were hitchhiking across the country, seriously, with their yeah. thumbs out. That Trusting. was just, you know, it was a whole different Woodstock kind of, of mentality, but at the same time, uh, X-rated movie houses were opening up, and you know there was no internet where you could just porn of the minute, whatever. <laughs> you, but X-rated movie houses and all this kind of stuff was happening, and then clubs where people were having sex were a big deal, and uh, Plato's retreats and stuff like that, and key parties and oh, yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff was going. Masters and Johnson, mm-hmm. and so the rule was lesbianism was okay in the context of heterosexual relationships. So, in these key parties and all this kind of stuff, there could be two women and a man. There couldn't be two men and a woman. Uh, Absolutely not. That just was not going to happen. So, it was okay for women to be bi at that time. There was no gender fluid or anything. But it was okay for 
you know, mom to be diddling the PTA lady. Mm. I mean, it was, this was not a, <laughs> the PTA a thing. Lady. So it made coming out, again, a tiered process like yeah. you talk about. And I think all coming out processes are, you know, we come out in stages. First, there's the realization, and then there's the, ma, this is my girlfriend kind of thing. And so when that happened, that's when my mother said, I knew. Which ticked me off. <laughs> of course. Because, like, then, duh, why didn't you yeah. tell me, you know? Why didn't we have this conversation before I brought it up, if you knew? And so why am I telling you? But moms love to call you out on shit. <laughs> then she asked me not to come out while she was alive. Which, again, was pretty standard at the time. Late 70s okay. to early 80s when I told her. And so it was still, you know, don't ask, don't tell wasn't even... A thing. It wasn't even a thought. It was, you know, you're in the military, you're gay, you're out, you're, that's just it. They kicked you out for that. And so it was a whole different world and it was expected for parents to say that, you know, it's okay. And you don't realize until later how hurtful and limiting and narrowing that is. And then when did you start incorporating it into your comedy? Because I've heard some of your earlier comedy and you talk about fucking dudes. Yeah. Well, that was the <laughs> I, life tra- I was living. This is an explicit podcast, so we can say fucking, but like, I don't know how else to put oh, that in. I was wondering if I you not get away with dudes. <laughs> you said dudes. Like I said, it was a whole different yeah. world. It was a whole different thing. There was no concept of out. Really, there's no out. Ellen coming out was huge. All of the stages that we've been through were huge at the time because the visibility was so narrow. And when the AIDS crisis happened, uh, conversations had to be had that had never been had before. And things started, unfortunately, getting very, very bleak. It was a whole different thing, different, you know, in the 70s, the Gay Pride, San, I was living in Los Angeles, so the Santa Monica Boulevard would be teeming. It was always Pride. Yeah. It was always, the whole thing, <laughs> it was huge. They'd block off the streets and every weekend. It was a big deal. And then when the AIDS crisis happened, there suddenly weren't nearly as many people. Oh, wow. I mean, it was noticeable. It was, and not just noticeable, it was tear-inducing. You just, wow, where is everybody? And uh, those kind of conversations, you know, led to everything that happened since. And uh, a lot of it was not good, but we've come to a different kind of awareness where uh, there are still kids going through horrible uh, experiences for being who they are. But that was the rule for everybody uh, at one time, except uh, Bette Midler in the baths. (laughs) There was that, too. How did you feel when, like, Ellen made that public coming out? Because you were a comic. You'd been on the scene for a while. Like, how was that for you? It was huge. But then again, we have to consider factor race into everything. And so that was huge. But that was a, a still didn't address anything as far as being gay in the black community. Little effect, uh, as far as I remember, uh, as far as being a black person, uh, the visibility was still not there. Ellen's coming out, open doors, and maybe allowed for people to now start of all different ethnicities to make their own claims. But it was still, you know. In fact, I say in the black community right now, we're still living don't ask, don't tell. We're still kind of, you know, let's keep that to yourself, love the center, hate the sand kind of stuff. 
You had some queer jokes on stage. We'll go back to the shoe thing because you were talking about going to a shoe store. Right. I hate going to a shoe store. I literally go online and buy the same shoe that I used to have. Once it starts to rip, I just buy the same shoe. Right. I found because when I first started trying to buy shoes for going on stage and stuff like that, I'd go in the shoe store and they got all these strappy heely thingies or or sneakers. And I'm like, where is the butch lady section? And so somebody said, you want Oxfords. And I went, okay, fine. Where are the Oxfords? And so they actually have them, you know, and they have some nice shoes that are comfortable and and look good. And so I started buying those and uh, looking for and going online and just Oxford. (laughs) That's when you get more of a comfortable uh, selection coming back at you. But then, you know, I am my mother's daughter. And my mother was a shoe freak. And so I see shoes and I get, I get it, you know, predatory and <laughs> moist. I'm like, and I buy them and then I carry them. I don't wear them. <laughs> I loved how you carried a pair of shoes and you put them on stage. And you're like, this is part of me, but not, nah, wear, she not can't putting make them on. Me wear them. Yeah. Nah. She can't do that. No, they hurt. I tried. <laughs> I was backstage. I put them on. And I walked around for a minute and said, I don't love these people that much. (laughs) This might be a weird question to ask, but you're performing in Vegas. You go on stage to whoever is there. You have some Trump jokes. Yes. Some people might be Trump people. Yes. You give a fuck. No. Had any hecklers that have been problematic or? Sure. I've had a couple, but, you know, they're... They're not comfortable in our space, in my space. I'm not comfortable in their space. But I don't have anything to say that I wouldn't say to their face. I'll say it to Trump. I go on, I mean, I follow his Twitter. And so, well, I don't follow his Twitter. I was like, he hasn't blocked you yet? (laughs) Well, I'm surprised because I'll say, shut up. Or, you know, who were you, you pussy grabber? (laughs) I mean, I will say whatever. I don't care if you're going to be online and say outrageous things, then you're going to get this response until he can't block us. He's not supposed to. He's blocked some people. I know, but he's not Which is like, what are you doing, man? I was like, shouldn't you be busy running a country? No, you're busy blocking. (laughs) Please. Blocking like comedians from New Orleans on Twitter. No, 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 no. (laughs) Don't let it. Let's send him to play golf. I don't get, though, why we're focused on him and not focused on the sickness that elected him. Uh, there are people who are fervently uh, enthusiastic about him. That indicates there's something really wrong. And so we're we're focusing on, you know, the symptom and not the cause. And we have to really address just what it is that makes this country find an empty suit like that suitable to be president. So this has been my question for people before. Nobody's had like a actual answer that I that I know what to do with you have people that are like Trump supporters and you have people that are not and I feel like when you get on Facebook if somebody says something anti-Trump and a Trump supporter doesn't like it they just block them like I feel like it's so divisive right now and it's so split that like how do you how do you talk to a Trump supporter how do you talk to somebody who doesn't agree or not even a Trump supporter just like somebody who doesn't believe in gay people or thinks we should all go to camps and like learn how to be straight or whatever like how do you talk to that person and get them to understand you're a human being and this is just 
who you are and how you feel. I don't know if this is like a question you can answer or whoever can answer, but how do we get from just being left and right or conservative and liberal to like coming together and having real conversations? I think you have to, first of all, eliminate the gang mentality. The, you know, where nine people are ganging up on you and liking each other's comments. And so it sounds like it's really persuasive and, you know, it's not. And I think people also have to be in in control of their own pages. When people come on my page and start talking crazy, I'll ask them, what do you mean by that? What is that? What are you saying? If it doesn't make sense to me, then I want to know, why are you saying this? You know, it's like, why are you speaking Chinese on my page? (laughs) This doesn't make sense. And But other people just block them, you know? Well, I I don't. Unless they get rude. Or unless they, again, are a swarm. Or unless they say something so... Threatening or... Well, not even threatening. Just so irredeemable that I can't can't talk to you. And it doesn't matter who they are and what it is about. Because a lot of them are very conservative in uh, their marital views or whatever. You know, we can talk about it until you get really uh, nasty and then then I don't have any problem blocking you. But most of the time, I'll just ask you, what do you mean by that? And a lot of times, people are surprised that somebody <laughs> goes, you know, wants to know. And I like, really want to know, what the heck do you mean? Yeah. Let's talk about it. We what do talk about it. I'm going to ask you a question that totally diverts from everything we just talked about. Okay. So I know, like, back in the day with comedy, there was, like, clean comedy that, like, got on TV and, like, got publicity. And then there was not clean comedy. And do you think that still exists now? Yeah. But people... They, a lot of times we apply a modern lens to a past situation and don't take into context what was going on. Back then, there was a lot of envelope pushing. We, you know, we, you can't have Dick Gregory's and, and, uh, Mort Saul's and Smothers Brothers and Lenny Bruce's and people like that, that without, you know, creating some real disturbance and, and, uh, even people like Dick Cavett and, I mean, there were a lot of people pushing against the norm and then every comic back then had to have their material approved by the censors every gig every time you went on tv you had to have your material approved and they had to know exactly what you were going to say from beginning to end and so we had those little games that we would (laughs) play where if i really want to do this joke i'll put in another joke that's much worse and so we'd go to the censors and they go, oh, you can't talk about nuns with no panties. And they okay, but I can talk about, you know, Donald Trump grabbing women by the genitals. So everybody did that. And everybody pushed the envelope. Now, you know, most of the comics that you saw on TV didn't say that that way in live performances. It was only the comics who did uh, supper clubs opening for singers and stuff like that that would be a little more clean but even in the clubs they were a lot more risque than you saw in the ed sullivan show or whatever i think it's so interesting that like the supper club scene kind of disappeared uh cost like, effective and we lost a lot of union representation you know there used to be unions that governed live performance and musicians and uh all kind of different stuff but all of those protections went by the wayside and everything got to be uh handled differently and so the supper clubs the playboy clubs the those circuits just died out in the advent of uh, stand up as headliner 
that wasn't really the norm before, but stand-up comedians selling out concerts and having um, musical acts open for them. That was huge. I think the first time I, I saw Richard Pryor uh, in concert, and he had Patti LaBelle open for him. I mean, it was a big deal. I don't think that had ever happened before. And I know you were uh, connected with Richard Pryor and you were part of the Richard Pryor show. I watched the foreplay dinner thing. Right. I don't know what it's exactly called, but that shit was We didn't have a name for it. There was a page in the script that said Richard and a beautiful woman sit across from (laughs) each other and seduce each other with food. That was the whole thing. What I loved about that is there's no talking in the whole thing. This is what I love going back to the basics of we can make a six-minute sketch funny with literally no words. But you're talking about a rookie. I was a rookie at that time. I had no experience doing sketches or anything like that. And I'm sitting across from Richard Pryor. And there's no script. And there's no rehearsal. We've never rehearsed. And I have no idea what to do. And uh, so the day we're supposed to shoot, Richard shows up late. He comes in about noon wearing a white suit with a carnation in his lapel. And I looked at him. I said, he got married. And they said, (laughs) what do you mean he got married? I said, that's a wedding suit. He's got a carnation in his lapel. The man got married. And of course, that was the day he got married. And all of this drama happened. And I mean, it was a a very messy situation. (laughs) And anyway, we never got to rehearse. So first scene up, when the show is taped in front of a live studio audience, there I am. With Richard freaking Pryor (laughs) and some food. Yeah. And I have to drive this scene, and I'm a 23-year-old stand-up who's... No acting. No acting, and really don't know how to seduce people. (laughs) I have no experience in any of that. And being the beautiful woman, that wasn't... So I just went for it. What I loved about it, so it's basically the... They're sitting at tables separately, going back and forth, and they're just eating things like very seductively. And I love how you like you pull out like a corn of the cob. <laughs> that was the only cut in the original. I picked up the corn and I held it and looked at him with this stalk of corn, and then I took the butter, <laughs> buttered the corn, <laughs> and uh, they yeah. cut that. Oh, they were like, we can't have that on television. No, we can't have that on. Yeah, but I love, I was like, because your meal was like so confusing. He had spaghetti and a biscuit at some point. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, well, what y'all are eating? <laughs> they just put food there and yeah. said, go for it. And like I said, I knew that I was driving the scene. I had enough experience being from Chicago and the whole concept of, uh, you know, supporting acting comedy teams and the funny guy doesn't drive the scene. You know, it's the straight yeah. man. I'm the straight woman in this thing. So I knew that, but that just made it more burdensome and uh, confusing. And so everybody said, just trust your gut, go for it. And that's what I did. And let me ask, because there was at the end of the show, or I don't know if it was part of the show, but there was a roast for Richard Pryor, <laughs> yeah. which ended up airing. How yeah. do you roast Richard Pryor? Uh, Richard, first of all, Richard said, roast me. He said, I don't want one of these clean-cut roasts, because what had happened was the Friars Club roasts were notorious for being, first of all, there were no women allowed. They were known for being just the raunchiest thing. No cameras, no nothing. It was just, you know, your mother's a 
or with, you know, I mean, just horrible stuff. And then Dean Martin took it mainstream on NBC, and he had the Dean Martin Bros. And they were edgy for TV, but they weren't anything like the Friars Club Bros. And Richard said, I want a real roast. I don't want this nice stuff. I want a real roast. So, of course, the writers wrote all of the stuff for us to do. And then Richard, on the spot, wrote the responses. Because he was real quiet the whole time, just And he just wrote, uh, and he listened to everything we said, <laughs> and he laughed, you know, at himself and everything. And then he just came back and eviscerated everybody. <laughs> yeah, he destroyed everybody. Yeah. Do you have any advice for new comics? Get out of the business. <laughs> yeah, you it's like you've said before, it's a calling, right? Like you, you, you have the calling or you don't have it. Everybody should find their own way. The thing about show business is there are no rules. That's the first rule of show business. There are no rules. No two performers in any field have ever made it the same way. Some people do classes. Some people uh, go to college. Some people whatever. Some people, you know, no two people. There are no rules. There's no test. There's no path. There is no one way to make it in show business. So you have to figure out what it is about you wherever it is you are, wherever it is you want to go, and how you're going to get there. And so trust your gut and just don't quit. Because if you quit, nothing's going to happen. And you know nothing is going to happen. If you don't quit, you don't know what might happen. Maybe nothing will happen, but at (laughs) least you didn't quit. Yeah. Your first time on stage, you remember your first time on stage? Sure. For me, it was a calling. But here again, every comedian doesn't have the same skill set. You know, when you do stand-up, you have to be the writer, director, producer, Mm -hmm. editor, uh, everything, costumer, wardrober, promoter. You have to do everything. And some of us are better at one thing than the other. There are brilliant performers who can't write for shit and writers who can't perform. And there are some people who think visually, some think uh, musically, something however. And so you have to figure out what it is you do, what you want to do, where you want to go. Some people don't want to be super famous. Some people want to be super famous. They don't want to necessarily be good. Some people want to just be good. And it's okay. I can go around and work and just be good. So you have to figure out how you fit what it is you want and when you're going to be satisfied with what it is you get. And stop comparing, you know, to other comedians. Because if you start in a pool of comics and you look around, the people that you think are going to be famous might not be. And the guy you think sucks will become a superstar. So you can't really compare or plan or plot. You never know. You know, it's just you have to do it because it is your calling, whatever it is your calling is. And what do you want for your future, if I may ask? World denom- domination. <laughs> I want to... 2020? We running? No. I want uh, I want to do stand-up. <laughs> and I want to, like I said, I want to do stand-jazz-up. I want to do stand-up. The stand-up, the Rosie the River, the, the Civil Rights Movement, the stand-up, the Great Panther, the whole, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll stand-up kind of thing. But I want to do... You know, I want to do sitcoms. I want to do a sitcom. I want to do stuff that says something. I don't want just want to tell jokes. You know, anybody can tell jokes, but I don't think everybody can do comedy. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. Like you have no idea how amazing and appreciative we are that you took the time out to do this and for us to see your show. It was so amazing. Well, thank Thank you, you, Marsha. I appreciate you having me and I hope this made some kind of sense. It did. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Marsha Warfield, for sharing her world with you. Thank you so much, Marsha, for coming on the show, for being a part of this, for giving us a shot, for giving us your time, for giving us tickets to your show, and just being a fabulous, amazing human being. We appreciate you so much. You, audience, can check out Marsha Warfield at the Stratosphere Hotel in Las Vegas every Wednesday and Thursday night. It is a hilarious show. I highly recommend it check it out. Also follow her on social media because she is on there giving you laughs all day, all night. She's at Marsha Warfield on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can go to her website, MarshaWarfield.com. Special thanks to Jess O'Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. And thanks to all our friends and supporters out there. Check us out on social media, Twitter at Queer to My Heart, Instagram and Facebook, Near and Queer to My Heart, Email near and queer to my heart at gmail.com. Thank y'all. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.